The reading for our sermon scripture reading this morning is from Luke 1, 58 to 80. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted to him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child, he grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see you all again. And uh, if you're new, if you're visiting us for the first time, I want to welcome you to our church uh, welcome to Risen. I'm Pastor Rich, and I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Um, if you want to get connected to our church, you know, um, if you want to get to know our church, the best way to do that is really to fill out a connection sheet, and that's at the bottom of um, the last page of the handout. If you fill that it out, you tear it off, and you turn it into the welcome table, um, they'll get back to you, and that will be the best way to get connected to us and to get connected to our church, really. So last week, <clears throat> we started our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. I'm, I'm hearing some feedback. You guys hear that somewhere? Or is that just me? That's just me. Thank you for that feedback. <laughs> All right. Um, so we started the Gospel of Luke, right? Uh, this short gospel is a gift from Luke to his friend Theophilus because it's natural for us to do things for people we care about, right? Uh, some of us like to cook meals as gifts for our friends. Others of us like to write cards and give books uh, that have had a meaningful impact upon our life. And that's what Luke's gospel is for his friend Theophilus. Last week, we looked at Jesus' family, their humble means, Jesus' upbringing in the humble town of Nazareth. We'll look at another family, uh, John the Baptist's family. And maybe you didn't know, but John the Baptist and Jesus were actually cousins. And Luke's gospel is actually the only gospel out of the four that dedicate a good portion 
of his writing to John's family and John's upbringing. And so here are two things we'll look at in our passage today. First, we're going to look at a biblical perspective of the family. And then second, we're going to look at the kingdom of God. All right, so those are just our two points today. Let's take a look at a biblical perspective of the family. You know, our text starts off uh, with a couple named Elizabeth and Zechariah. There's a huge portion of the beginning of Luke's gospel that is committed to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest who served at the Jerusalem temple. And his wife, Elizabeth, is quite old to become a mother. Uh, But in her old age, God gives her a child. And our text tells us that when she finally gives birth, her friends and her family, they rejoiced with her. That's what the text says. But it wasn't just so she can experience what it means to be a mother. That was not why they were rejoicing with her. That was actually going to be the difficult part for her. But it was much more practical than that. You see, these days, having children um, is, is somewhat a personal preference. Some choose to have kids. Others don't. With modern medicine and technology, uh, you can even limit how many kids you want to have. Now, this doesn't mean that the struggle to conceive and experience being a parent isn't a real struggle. Uh, it is. Some of you know it's something that Jen and I struggle with. But back then... <clears throat> It wasn't ever a preference. Let me explain. You see, today our our modern Western culture is very individualistic. We think of our lives and purpose through individual choice and individual fulfillment. But back then, nobody thought that way. You didn't have a choice. It was a tribal society. They didn't think as individuals. They thought as a family. They thought as a tribe. And this was because travel wasn't as accessible as it is today. And so the social group you grew up in was the social group you most likely died in. There was no real transportation and outward movement. So your family network, your tribe was everything. And the expectation of children in your tribe was to take over the family business. This was how you survived back then. Without machinery, individual choice and individual uh, career dreams just meant one less working body. Think about how strange that is. Imagine telling your children, you cannot choose what you want to be when you grow up. You must take over the family business, right? It's, it's very antithetical to the culture we grow up in. Individual choice, individual freedom is almost everything. And second, back then, there was no centralized uh, law enforcement. So the larger your tribe, the more significant your, your fighting power, your manpower, uh, the less you'd be robbed the less you'd be raided and wiped out. And so back then, it wasn't about your individual choice, individual dream. It was the family's security, status, and legacy. That's how it was. But lastly, because it was a patriarchal society, back then, the woman, uh, the role that woman played in society was limited. So there was this tremendous pressure on women in antiquity to bear children. In that society, and that culture, this was their primary role. This was their significance. This was their identity. Now, obviously, things have changed tremendously with globalization, right? We no longer have tribes. 
the development of modern government and centralized uh, justice systems. We don't just have to fend for ourselves. And of course, the growth in personal and social freedoms of women. But more importantly, from a biblical perspective, ever since the advent of Christ, we see a significant shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You no longer see this tremendous emphasis on creating a family and a lineage. Barrenness is, is no longer a tremendous um, turmoil for families. We see this shift from an inward focus on a specific nation like Israel as God's people to all the nations as God's people, even their enemies. You see Jesus bringing in Canaanites and Samaritans, longtime enemies of Israel. The book of Acts, you see Philip reaching out to the Ethiopian official, Paul and Peter bringing in the Romans, the very Romans that are oppressing them, Greeks and Turks. So you see this shift ethnically. And second, there's this shift from one's own family as the ultimate end, and instead, the biological family now being a means to another end, a means to the end of enjoying Christ, a means to the end of glorifying Christ in the family. This shift is, is probably seen the most strongest in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, it says that while Jesus was just speaking to people, uh, his mother and his brothers were outside asking to speak to Jesus. But Jesus replied to the man who told him this, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, when you, when you listen to this, you think, wait a minute, wait. Doesn't the fourth commandment say, honor your father and mother? Right? That, that, doesn't, doesn't Jesus say you should honor your parents? So how do we make sense of these two seemingly contradictory statements? Well, what we have here is a paradox. What is a paradox? A paradox is something that seems to be contradictory on the surface, but in reality, they express a truth. For example, you can love your friend and be the most angry you've ever been. No one has made you more angry than this friend at the same time. It doesn't have to be one or the other on the surface. It seems like, you know, how, how does that work out? but our experience tells us otherwise. Here's another example of a paradox. Uh, you know, LeBron James is one of the best basketball players in the world. But he also has the most turnovers in NBA history. Right? So, so, so how can you be the best NBA basketball, one of the best basketball players ever if you have one of the most turnovers ever? You see, on the surface, there are two seemingly uh, incompatible statements, and yet, they are both compatible. That's what a paradox is. And so understanding the concept of paradoxes is essential, friends. It is essential to understanding reality.
You're not just choosing black or white. It's not that simple. You need to think a little bit deeper to understand how paradoxes are a tremendous part of our lives. So first, let's go, what, let's go over what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying, don't care for your family. He is not saying that. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says, if anyone does not care for his own family, they have denied the faith. Okay? So part of being a Christian, uh, a basic and essential part of being a Christian is caring for your family. Actually, this is probably just one of the applications how we can do the Father's will, which is to care for our families, to honor our mother and father. But what Jesus is getting at in Luke 8 is that there is a difference between honoring parents and being controlled by them. Right? There is a difference. Some of us struggle with that difference if you're a people pleaser. You think that maybe you have to listen to everything, right, your family members say if you want to be a good family member. There's a difference between loving our children and worshiping our children's future. You see, that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is getting at the distinct line between honoring and loving and then your family being the ultimate authority. Now, what does that mean? Well, the guiding principle that we find in Scripture to help us navigate this paradoxical family dynamic is this. No matter how good of a family you have, without an uncompromised loyalty to God, to his call to integrity, to his call to kindness, patience, and wisdom, without Christ in the center of your family, no matter how good your family is, without Christ at the top of that family, no matter how good your family is, the power of sin will have its way in your family. That's what Jesus is saying. And in his life, and in, in, in Luke 8, he's showing us an example how he can honor his mother and father, because Jesus never sinned. He never broke the fourth commandment. He's still honoring them, Right? At the same time, he is not making his biological family the ultimate end, the ultimate controlling factor in his life. But he is filtering everything by submitting every moment with his family to the wisdom and to the love and to the will of God, right? Sometimes when we're having discussions with our family, our pride gets involved. We start to lie. <laughs> And in those moments, you need to submit that to the authority of Christ and, and the wisdom and the love and the will of God. You see, Jesus is challenging in Luke chapter 8, even his own family, to learn how to incorporate more thoroughly the will of God and the ultimate and eternal and spiritual family of Christ into their lives. So when Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my mother, what he is saying is, to be a true family, to be a joyful family, to be an enduring family, we must do the will of God. That's what he's saying. And second, he's highlighting how the biological family is to partner with the will of God into the flourishing of this ultimate and eternal and spiritual family 
through the vehicle of the gospel in a broken world. Now, what does that mean? Let me just give one example of how Jesus is highlighting the flourishing of the spiritual family of Christ through the vehicle of the gospel in a broken world. You know, one of the ways this fleshes out is the phenomenon of adoption. You know, adoption in antiquity was extremely rare. Orphans were usually picked up for slavery. Uh, But in his book, The Kindness of Strangers, John Boswell writes how the practice of adoption, this phenomenon, it's it's, it's almost a a phenomenon. It's it's almost a cultural norm. He says this, this principle has become a norm because it's rooted in redemption. Redeeming an orphan with parents and a family which finds its roots in the biblical doctrine of adoption, right? You see, the biblical doctrine of adoption says that God would give up his only biological son for those who are not his biological children. You see, the very message of the gospel is a message of adoption. It's a message of redemption. Friends, you and I have been adopted by God. see, this is just one way how the biological family, the biological union becomes a vehicle of the gospel in a broken world. Now in our text in verse 60, when Elizabeth tells her friends and her families that her son's name will be John, what do they say? They say, hold on, none of your relative's name is John. Now do you find that strange? Like, why do I have to name my, my child after a relative, right? When does that become a rule? Well, it was a rule back then because this was how the children were going to legally continue the family's legacy. They were not only going to carry out the family's status. They were literally going to carry out the family's name. So if whatever tribe you're in, whatever 12 tribes you were of in, in the tribes of Israel, usually you took one of those names to further your tribe. And so there was tremendous pride in whatever tribe you were in. But back in verse 13, uh, man, this, this discourse of John the Baptist is, is very long. But back in verse 13, when the angel first comes to Zechariah, he tells him that you're going to name your son John. And it comes from the Hebrew name Johan, which means God is gracious. In other words, the angel is communicating in no unclear terms that this child would not be continuing the family's legacy. <laughs> but instead, he was going to live for the spiritual family of Christ to the highest degree. And so his name would reflect that. And it's pretty, pretty brilliant uh, the, the sort of poetic uh, 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 rhetoric that's being displayed here because, you know, most people are thinking, John, you know, no one is named in your family that, but I get it. He's given you a child. But instead, it wasn't to further Elizabeth and Zechariah's name. God is gracious. They're naming their son John because this child would further the name of Christ. This child would be the forerunner of the long-awaited kingdom of God. That's the irony. This brings us to the second point, the kingdom of God. 
Now in our text, there's, um, there's a lot we could unpack about the kingdom of God. Uh, there are books, thousands of books that have been written about the kingdom of God. So obviously I won't be able to, you know, uh, do this exhaustively in one sermon. But I do want to highlight this theme that is mentioned twice in Zechariah's prophecy of his son. That's going to help us understand the nature of the kingdom of God. I want to focus on verse 71 and verse 74. But it starts in verse 68. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us that we should be saved from our enemies. Right? That's the first occurrence of that phrase. Saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of, again, of our enemies, that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Right, Zechariah is prophesying that this uh, uh, son is going to bring in a king who will save us from our enemies. He says that twice. This is a big deal. Why is that? Well, in Zechariah's day, Israel was waiting for an earthly king. The last king they had um, was probably 300 years ago before Babylon came and wiped them out. Ever since then, they had no king. They were subjugated to the king of Persia or the king of Greece or the, ping, the king of Rome. And they were waiting for this king to deliver them from their political and their religious enemies. And in Zechariah's day, that enemy was clearly Rome. Because Rome had conquered and subjugated Israel. A uh, hundred years after Jesus, actually, Rome eventually has enough of this infighting with their subjugated uh, nation, Israel, and, and they just destroy the temple. They're like, we're done with you guys. We're not going to compromise anymore. We tried. And so they essentially just wipe out their temple. But in Jesus' day, they're still doing this dance. You know, Rome heavily taxed Israel and, and, and use that for themselves only for their own sort of city. They didn't allow Israelites to become Roman citizens, so Israelites couldn't legally hold on to any property. The Roman government could take it away any moment. Israelites, Israelites weren't awarded the favor and protection of the judicial system and the Roman military. And so being an Israelite under the subjugation of Rome meant that you always lived in fear. You always lived in fear. And like I mentioned, Rome controlled Israel's life of worship. They looked down on the teachings of Scripture, and they would force Israelites to make compromises according to their own customs. So Israel was desperate. They were desperately waiting to be delivered from their enemies, the Roman government. So that in, as, as uh, Zechariah prophesies in verse 74, that they could worship God without fear. So that they could live in righteousness and justice and follow God. This was the kind of kingdom of God they were expecting. No one, no Israelite was expecting any kind of kingdom any different. They were all expecting a future leader to lead a rebellion. And Jesus is born. He's got the first requirement checked off. He loves God. <laughs> he follows God. He knows the word of God. He's preaching. He's feeding the poor. He's, he's healing the sick. You know, there, there seems to be some kind of supernatural favor of God upon him. Everyone is waiting. 
When is Jesus going to check off the second requirement? He's got to start calling people to arms. He's got to gather an army. Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison. And he's been arrested for um, calling out Rome's client king of Israel, uh, King Herod. He's a puppet king. Because King Herod um, is trying to lead this, you know, uh, country Israel. He's, he's very immoral. He's taken his brother's wife as his own wife. I mean, he's, he's pretty terrible. So John is, you know, prophetically just calling him out. So Herod has him arrested. And then John sends word by his own disciples to Jesus, the future king of Israel, he says, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? <laughs> right? He's like, hey, cousin, <laughs> I've had your back this entire time. Are you going to lead a rebellion? Are you going to free me from prison? Are you the king? Or should we look, should we look for someone else, man? <laughs> Even John the Baptist was expecting an earthly and political king. Writer David Turner says, John is expecting an, a more immediate judgment of the religious and political establishment in his day. He's pondering whither to look for another king, an earthly, different kind of king from Jesus. And then Jesus tells John's disciples, go tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up. And the poor, the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is quoting the book of Isaiah and the prophecies of what the future king of Israel will come to do. Jesus is saying, John, I am the king. But the kingdom I'm bringing isn't one of political power or earthly power, but of spiritual power. And then he ends this phrase, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So here's what this means. We can't, once again, we can't cover everything about the kingdom of God, but I'm just going to highlight one thing here. First, the spiritual kingdom that Jesus brings is one of truth and grace, but never violence. And we see this constantly throughout the Gospels, how Jesus paradoxically balances truth and grace with wisdom, tremendous wisdom, with, with tremendous rhetoric ability, with piercing logic and insight, Jesus calls out, the sin of anger and pride and self-righteousness and greed and jealousy and all kinds of injustice. People can't say anything back. He's thought out through his logical arguments. He never gets riled up and takes a personal note. He's, he's arguing from principle and consistency. You see Jesus balance this, this amazing display of truth. And at the same time, we see Jesus live a life of tremendous, tremendous grace. Tremendous grace for the poor. Tremendous grace for the sick. Tremendous grace for the broken and the afflicted, the bruised reeds of life. Never did he ever teach or encourage violence. When Peter drew his sword to fight Jesus' arresters, he's like, okay, this is it, now or never. 
right? Like either we're going to, we're gonna, I'm going to jumpstart this rebellion, Jesus, because, okay, you know, you're a little bit too soft. And so Jesus brings out his sword to fight off the arresters, slices off a soldier's ear. Jesus rebukes Peter and heals the soldier's ear. But there is this one time where Jesus does get violent, <laughs> When he flipped up the tables, right? You guys remember that? He flips over the tables twice okay, in the temple of the merchants, and he chases them out with a whip, sort of like Wonder Woman style. Right? He's just like, he's chasing them out. And he said, my house shall not be called, uh, or my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Right? My house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Because historically, it's been recorded that the court of Gentiles was the area that was replaced by this marketplace. So Jesus was condemning the merchants of stealing the spiritual space that was designated for non-Jews to come and worship God. So there is this sense that there are these rare occasions where such blasphemous acts trigger a righteous indignation. I remember a time where my professor told me that um, a mother had called him panicked because the father was abusing the child. So the pastor went over, rushed in, and violently tackled the father, right? There are rare occasions where sometimes you need a righteous indignation to protect the innocent. Now, this nonviolent message of grace and truth may not seem practical, right? Uh, people might scoff at it. People may think it's naive and foolish. People might get offended by such a weak teaching because you've got to fight fire with fire. That's what, that's what we're taught, right? That's the world's way of, of, of handling your social interactions, uh, the strongest survive. Might makes right. And that's why Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by my teaching. You're blessed if you get this. Right? If you're so offended that you've got to be gracious, if you're so offended that you've got to swallow your pride that someone has slighted you, you're not blessed. But if you get this, you're blessed. You see, John the Baptist was not only suffering for his faith, Jesus was telling him to suffer nonviolently. That doesn't mean that John needed to be silent or accept the status quo without pursuing a solution or change. But Jesus' point was very clear to John. The strategy attached to the kingdom of God, to the witness of Christ, is not one of political warfare, of violence. And here's why. You see, when Zechariah is prophesying that Jesus would save them from their enemies, Zechariah is thinking about Rome. He's thinking about his physical enemy. But friends, there is a greater enemy. The Bible explains how all the brokenness we experience in the world is due to an undeniable force called sin. 
It has its way in families, amongst friends, in the workplace, and in society. It, a, it is a cosmic force, a universal force that no army can conquer. The only hope from this greater enemy, from this power of sin, and its ultimate end of death, is the kingship of Christ. And as Zechariah says in verse 77, this power and salvation comes through the forgiveness of sins, through the tender mercy of God. Verse 79 tells us that this forgiveness of sins and this tender mercy of God is the light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. It guides our feet into the way of peace. But Zechariah is really unknowingly prophesying, and Jesus shows as he fulfills this prophecy in his life and his death and resurrection is that the injustices of the world are real. Not just on a systemic scale, though, also on a personal scale. Friends, you and I, we all stand imperfect, and we fall greatly short of loving God and loving each other. This is the reality of our ethical and moral righteousness. But out of God's tender mercy, the Father sent his Son to heal us from the spiritual disease of sin and its term terminality of death. And, and like a trans heart transplant, it's a spiritual heart transplant. Jesus takes it upon himself. The only one who was sinless and never deserving of the consequences of death takes our sin and death on the cross so that the spiritual and eternal life of his could be transplanted into our hearts. Friends, Jesus is the preeminent Savior, and he is the example of how the power and reality of a nonviolent gospel saves enemies of God from their sin and changes them. Now, I believe that you can imagine how this can play out in every aspect of our lives. This kind of honest and gracious and forgiving gospel and love has the ability to turn a fresh page of hope every single day for our family, for our marriages, for our friendships. Every single day we have the hope of a non-violent gospel, a gospel of grace to redeem and renew and make peace and shine light into the darkness of our relationships. It has the ability to soften coworkers, harden coworkers that won't give an inch. This nonviolent gospel. It has the ability to reconcile us to our ethnic, to political, and to social enemies. If we have the faith that the Bible is true, and the social and political enemies that we see in the even in the, in the twelve disciples, where you have a zealot, someone who wants to lead this rebellion, and then you have uh, a tax collector like Levi who worked for the Roman government, you have those two friends putting aside their 
allegiance for the gospel. If we have the faith to believe that God can use the gospel, and if we have the heart to suffer like Christ. Friends, I believe that the world has heard this message before. Nothing I'm saying is new. What the world needs, though, are living examples. Blessed is the one who is not offended by this king. Let us pray. Gracious God, Father, um, you know, as we go through the Gospel of Luke, it's a beautiful thing because we cannot avoid whatever you say. We must face it head on. We must examine your teaching. And we must reflect upon it. Pray that our hearts would be softened by it. And Father, there are so many ways that we want to crush our enemies. There are so many, so many ways where we have anger and resentment and hatred, so many scars that we want to bring vengeance. We want to rain down fire. And the gospel doesn't mean that, that we don't pursue justice. The gospel doesn't mean that we, we do not try to pursue reforming justice. But there is a sense where we find the limitations of physical force. So you've come into this world to show us another way. And it can be downright offensive sometimes because we feel like we've been wronged. And we feel like sometimes maybe you don't understand what we're going through and how long we've been suffering. But Jesus, you say, I do know. I do know what it means to be devastatingly poor. I do know what it means to be forcefully oppressed. I know what it means to be arrested for unjust cause. I know what it means to not be given a voice. I know what it means to be treated roughly by my enemies. you tell us but you know what you were also an enemy of God and I've died for your sins I've washed them away as far as the east is from the west your sins have been removed and you are whiter than snow and when we reflect upon that gospel message how could this be that a God would do this for us, we find a flicker of hope. 
we find a flicker of strength. We find a flicker of grace. And so, Father, I pray that you would do something special here at our church. That we would not only share the message and the gospel of Christ, but you would help us to be living examples. Father, we thank you that you have been the ultimate example. And that as you stretch us and you challenge us, that the core of this gospel, this grace, would influence how we engage in the workplace, in our families, when we feel slighted, when there is conflict, when there is bitterness and resentment. How we engage with the world, how we engage with society. Would you help us? Would you bless us? In Jesus' name, amen.